Sometimes it happens a lot. Uh, good things we do for other people are misunderstood, unappreciated, and sometimes they're met with outright hostility. In our passage this morning in John 5, where we see Jesus do a unique kind of miracle for a very unique candidate for a miracle, could be titled, No Good Deed Goes Unpunished. And as we see uh, the Lord deal with kind of uh, this unwarranted, undeserved hostility, I think we can learn some lessons about uh, how we should think to be more Christ-like as believers. And also, we need to be reminded that the gospel is inherently offensive to most people. And if we try to compromise it or water it down to make it more attractive, we end up losing it. And we dare not, dare not do that. So uh, let's pray to prepare ourselves to feed on God's word this morning. And uh, let's pray for our peace officers, our firefighters, and our active military. And uh, let's see, Dr. Deeg, would you pray for us in that direction, please? Thank you. Uh, just to warm up our capacity for abstract thinking, let's have some fun with preachers and churches for just a minute. Here's a pastor in the pulpit, and he says the title of this week's sermon is, I just spent all week working on a sermon, and I got nothing. <laughs> then we've got uh, the greeter at the church, and he says, before you sit down, turn to someone you don't know and say, let's have coffee. And ushers, please go greet all the introverts who have slipped away into the restrooms. <laughs> so they don't have to talk to people they don't know and invite them to have coffee. And then finally, and I'm going to end with this because I think there's a tendency to kind of water down the essence of what we're saying. I think for too long, evangelicals have been too strident and even hateful in our vocabulary and our tone. And I've certainly done that a few times myself. Uh, we do need to temper that, but we can't deny the essence of the faith, thinking of people like us, eventually they'll come around and like Jesus. Well, you reinvent Jesus into kind of an American superhero instead of the creator, redeemer, and consummator of the universe, and that's who he is. And uh, those of us who want to try to play with that are, are not doing him or ourselves a service. So here we got the light, L-I-T-E, church, 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons. This would be funny if it wasn't so familiar because this is a market strategy some of these cats come up with. They think they see themselves as religious entrepreneurs instead of shepherds. And the crazy thing is in some of the big cities, this works, man. It, it attracts people. They love it. Uh, we have only eight commandments, your choice. <laughs> uh Bill Bright came up with the four spiritual laws track, which kind of walks you through the gospel. Uh, we have just three spiritual laws, and we have an 800-year, not a 1,000-year millennium, but an 800-year millennium, everything he wanted in a church and less. Right? So uh, that's funny, but it's sad. But let's uh, resume our study of the seven sign miracles that validate who Jesus is in the Gospel of John. And that's the Gospel of John. And what you see here is John's writing with a purpose. He tells you at the end of the book, the key hangs at the back door, Brandy, 
Many other signs Jesus also performed, which are not written in this book. I'm not trying to tell you everything I know about Jesus, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, okay? Shiloh, that he's the Savior, that he does the work and you receive it through faith. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you have life in his name. That's why he's writing. And to get to that purpose, he tells us about seven specific miracles Jesus did that are more than adequate to validate his claims and his teachings. Then we go to the upper room discourse where Jesus meets with the 11 believing disciples just before he's arrested and tells them, how do you walk with Jesus when Jesus is no longer walking around on the planet like he's been walking around for three years with these guys? You abide in him. Believers abide in Christ. Uh, the seven signs emphasize that because Jesus is the Savior, if you believe in him, you'll have eternal life. To believe in Christ, as we'll see, is active, receptive trust. It's not just mental assent. It's full consent of the will. And it's the sinner saying, I am a sinner. It's on me. It's my fault. I can't fix it. Jesus can, and I want him to. But how do we walk with Jesus, Doug, when Jesus isn't physically walking around on the earth anymore? Well, he tells them in the upper room discourse in 13 through 17 in John, you abide in Christ. The believer abides in Christ when he or she actively recognizes and responds to the one, the person, Savior and Lord who saved them. So out of gratitude and love and respect, which is why in 1 John we're told you can't be abiding in Christ and sinning. You can't be uh, reflecting on and responding to Christ and lying, cheating, stealing, etc. at the same time. They're uh, antithetical. So we have seven signs that start with the water and the wine and end with the raising of Lazarus. But the ultimate sign of who Jesus is is what? The resurrection. That's the ultimate sign. And the whole book, book kind of builds towards that. Now we're looking at these seven signs in this first part of the book and we're walking through them sequentially we've seen the water and the wine we saw the long distance miracle last week jesus in cana heals a guy seven 19 miles away and today we're going to be in jerusalem and we're going to see the healing of the paralyzed man in john 5 now if you look if you've got your notes there from the bulletin insert uh under that list of seven signs water and the wine healing the royal official's son in capernaum in bold, we've got today's healing of the paralyzed man. Next uh, Sunday, Ron Miller is going to be speaking. And uh, you know what? Um, I really think I take Ron for granted just because he's so doggone consistent. And, uh, you know, he just kind of does whatever me and James ask him to do. And he's always here, and he seems to be happy to be here. And uh, he does a nice – he loves the Lord, loves his church, and does a really nice job teaching. Now, there's a theory, Ben – that when the pastor goes out of town and he tries to get guest speakers, uh, there are two views. A lot of pastors like to get the worst possible guest speaker so the church will want the pastor to come back at the end of the vacation. Uh, other pastors get the best possible speakers to uh, bless his people. And I'll let you figure out which theory I'm using. But Ron Miller <laughs> is going to be speaking next week, and it, it'll be good because he always does a wonderful job. And then James is going to speak the next week. And uh, he's going to speak on the feeding of the 5,000. So uh, we're going to just kind of pick up the, uh, the kind of the theme that we're looking at these seven miracles. And James will look at that one. And then, Lord willing, uh, on uh, three Sundays from today, we'll be walking on water or, wa or watch Jesus walk on the water in John 6. Okay. But today, let's look at the uh, no good deed goes unpunished, the healing of a very unusual candidate 
for a miracle. He has no idea who Jesus is. <laughs> you know, he didn't have a lot of faith because he had no idea who Jesus was as he interacts with him. Uh, but we're going to see a setting, uh, the setting, the sign, and the scandal. Let's read verses 1 through 5. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep's Gate, which was uh, kind of the northern part of the city, just north of the temple, that gate, a pool outside the walls of the city, which is called in Hebrew uh, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these porticos, porches, lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, and a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Jumped over a little stuff there, didn't I? I'll tell you why we did that in a minute. But go back to verse 1. After these things, after what things? Well, the last thing that was recorded was Jesus healing the uh, uh, the, the noble official's son, nobleman's son, in uh, Capernaum when Jesus was 19 miles away. That would have been probably late April of 30 A.D., and now, Debbie, we're told that uh, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for a feast, but we're not told which feast it is. And uh, most of the scholars assume it's probably tabernacles, which would have been in the fall of that same year. But John doesn't tell you. And when he doesn't tell you, there's a reason he doesn't tell you. I think he's just explaining why Jesus, who at this point is ministering mainly in the northern region, is now in the southern region. He's not in Galilee, in and around Capernaum. He's in Judea, in Jerusalem. So... Uh, tabernacles is probably correct, but that's not important for our purposes here. What is important to notice is, notice it says, uh, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for this feast. Now there is in Jerusalem. Now that, you might think that's no big deal, but it actually is a big deal. Uh, there's a map, just to kind of put this uh, on a map kind of thing. Uh, during Jesus' day, the Jews lived either in southern Israel or northern Israel, uh, they didn't like nor interact with the Samaritans. Of course, Jesus didn't allow prejudices like that to affect him. He went right through the middle of Samaria, as we talked about. But rather than being up here in Galilee, like he spent most of his time, especially early on, we're down here and we're in Jerusalem. So, boom, we're going to typically, like last week, see the Lord ministering in Galilee, but now we're down here in Judea, specifically in the city of Jerusalem. And we read that as John writes this, he says, the Gospel of John, he says, there is in Jerusalem, there is, as I'm writing this, in Jerusalem, this particular pool you need to know about. Now, uh, traditionally, liberals and liberal critical scholars and conservative scholars, uh, for a couple of different reasons, have tended to date the Gospel of John pretty late in the first century, about 90 A.D., even 95 A.D. is kind of the typical dating that's usually assumed uh, but when you look at this, you realize that uh, there was an event that happened in 70 A.D., namely the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem and left everything in shambles. And you wouldn't have said after 70 A.D. there is in Jerusalem this pool because the pool would have been filled up with rubble from the temple and other buildings they destroyed. So although there is a grammatical thing in ancient Greek where you can refer to something in the past, in the present tense, it's called a historical present, uh, there are other syntactic factors here that make this look like a typical conventional present tense. And if that's true, that's pretty cool because John's saying 
that as I write this, sometime before 70 A.D., when this wouldn't be true anymore, uh, there is a there is this pool in Jerusalem, and I'm going to tell you what happened there. Uh, the, the interesting thing is when you look at one of the big arguments used against Christianity today, Brandy is, well, how do you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't just uh, weren't just written hundreds of years after the fact, after legends and different uh, things creep into what they're going to write? Well, there, one reason you can have confidence is because the four Gospels in the Bible were all written in the first century, and there's a lot of good evidence for that. These Gospels that you hear about uh, on uh, History Channel specials, the Gospel of Judas has gotten a lot of uh, mileage lately, and the Gospel of Thomas, are all late second century counterfeit Gospels with a particular Gnostic theological agenda, two different things. So this would be really cool because you've got John writing maybe 68 A.D., just a couple of decades after the events, talking about this event that he was present to see. I won't spend a lot of time here, but when you look at the manuscript evidence for the New Testament and compare it to everything else in ancient history, there is no comparison because you look at Caesar writing about the Gallic Wars and nobody doubts that essentially what he said there is essentially what is saying is what uh, we have in his the manuscripts we do have and yada 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 but he wrote early uh, he he wrote in the first century BC uh, his magnum opus was called the Gallic Wars the wars in France he fought and the earliest copy of Caesar's Gallic Wars Tom and Tom likes old books if you find one of these old books like one of these let me know okay but the earliest copy you get your hands on is dated 900 A.D., and he's writing in the first century B.C., but nobody doubts, essentially, that's a, de- a decent copy. You know how many total manuscripts we've got of Gallic Wars? we got ten, okay? Go through these other people. The New Testament, written in the first century. The earliest partial manuscript we have of any New Testament book is the John Rylance Papyrus, carbon dated to 115 to 125 A.D., okay? Very, very quickly, we've got 24,000 manuscripts of Greek, Latin, Syriac, and others. So it's not that hard to put together the, the content of the New Testament with 99% accurately, accuracy based on all that evidence. So long story short, John was inspired as he writes the original manuscript uh, in a special kind of Class A miracle. But when you look at the copying process, which wasn't directly inspired, but get all these different scribes copying this together, get all this stuff together, you compare it, you can easily put together the vast bulk, like 99% of what the original authors wrote without any doubt at all. However, you do have a couple of glitches, okay, in the copying process, not the inspiration. And you see that at the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4. I purposely skipped over the part of, uh, excuse me, typically, slow down, Brad. Sometimes my brain goes so fast. I'm thinking about lunch, by the way. But uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, uh, my Bible's got a bracket around the phrase at the end of verse three, waiting for the moving of the waters, and it continues through the end of verse four. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons, from time to time, into the pool, and stirred up the water, and then whomever then first of the lame and sick people. See, laying around it, whoever first stepped into the water after the angel kind of stirred it up would be healed of their affliction. Uh, boom. 
Now, here's the problem. You know, if the, if the text said that, I'm perfectly willing to believe that God could do something like this and an angel by and by, but it would be unusual, right? However, the problem is, as Dr. Constable points out, and I have, have it in your notes, uh, this section of the text has doubtful authenticity, okay? In addition to being a proponent for the inspiration of the New Testament and the fact that we've got all this unbelievably rich uh verification of the text based on all these copies as early as 115 and 125 A.D. and from then on. I'm also going to tell you when there have been a couple things added that probably shouldn't be in there that weren't really written by John. And here's the reason people like me will say that. You don't see those words, the the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4, until suddenly it appears in these copies in about the early 5th century, about 400 A.D. Suddenly it just appears in one regional section where they were making copies. And I think what happened was not some nefarious desire to mess things up. I think there was a, probably uh, some oral history floating around, which may or may not have been true, that there was a superstitious belief that occasionally an angel would stir up that particular pool in Jerusalem, and that's why all these sick people wait around the pool all day long. As Constable points out, uh, based on the... Evidence we've got, John didn't write that. Uh, that's probably a, a reference to superstition. And a more probable explanation is that uh, this pool was fed by an underground spring that had mineral waters in it. And from time to time it would bubble up, and the first person who got in, depending on their, they had a joint soreness, probably the joint felt better. You know, But I'm not denying the supernatural aspects of the writing of the text. But when we bump into stuff that clearly just shows up later, I'm going to tell you that. So when you read Bart Ehrman, you won't have a uh, existential crisis when you find that there's certain a couple of sections here and there that are kind of unusual. Let's say, look at the bottom of verse four, uh, verse five. I guess I should say. Uh, now the important thing to to end the setting with is that there was a man at this pool who was waiting for what he thought might happen that would heal him, who'd been ill, who as it turned out lame. For 38 years. Now he wasn't born lame, but and I'm I'm guessing this guy is just to make the math easy. Later, I'm going to guess he's 58 years old. Okay, so if he's 58 and he's been lame for 38 years, how old was he when he went lame? 20, right? So we're gonna we're gonna use that because the only numbers I'm good with are 316. I'm not a mathematician and stuff, so let's not mess with that. Okay, let's go from the setting to the sign. Look at verses six through nine. When Jesus saw him, this guy who's been lame for 38 years, it doesn't mean he's been laying at the pool 38 years necessarily, but he's laying there now. Um, and Jesus knew he'd been there a long time. In fact, he knows the, he knows the exact days, hours, and, and seconds, if you want to know that. Uh, a long time in that condition, Jesus said to him, do you wish to get well? You know, some people like being miserable. Uh, it gives them something to talk about, makes them feel important. And you learn to try to help people, not enable people to stay there. Okay, so that's a very—I mean—that's a brilliant question to ask. Do you really want to get well? Now, watch this. This guy has no idea who Jesus is, but he thinks this is a good Samaritan who's saying, "Hey, if you want to get well, I'll help you get in the pool." In fact, the guy's kind of uh, giving him a, a sad a sob story here. He says, uh, "Yeah, look, I've got no man to put me into the pool with the water stirred up." But while I'm, uh, while I'm coming, trying to get in the pool, somebody else beats me down into it. So there's no way I'm going to get it. So he's kind of hoping Jesus will be a good Samaritan to help him in the pool. But Jesus, 
eliminates the middleman, the angel that may or may not actually have done that. Uh, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat. I don't like the word pallet, okay? I just have these... I don't, I don't use the word often pallet. I, I prefer the term mat. So I'm going to, that's what the word means. So let's just use it there. Jesus just looks at him and says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Now this guy is a weird candidate for miracle, Deborah, because typically you see Jesus responding to great faith in miracles. People come to him in faith, believing that he can do miracles, believing he's the Christ, hopefully, and he can do miracles. And then you get responses to that. But sometimes Jesus just does a random act of kindness just because of great human need he has compassion for this person now before i forget let me tell you i don't think you're going to see this guy in heaven necessarily because i think it as you're going to see he's going to snitch on jesus here in a minute as soon as he figures out who jesus is to the bad guys uh, now it is possible maybe after the event of this chapter the guy reflected on it connie and eventually came to faith for instance, we know Nicodemus, who back in chapter 3 interacted with Jesus, and we're not told in chapter 3 he comes to faith. We know he comes to faith in chapter 19 because he's mentioned later. So it's, it's not impossible, but don't be surprised if this guy is not in heaven at all. He certainly does, He's not looking for the Christ here. He's just looking for somebody to help him in the pool. But Jesus, as a messianic miracle, a miracle that the Messiah was to do, according to the Old Testament prophets, heal the lame, as several prophets talk about the Messiah will be able to do that. He says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And immediately, the man became well. Boom, this is supernatural. You can't reproduce this in a laboratory. Uh, picked up his, his mat and began to walk. Now, you guys know there are two phases here. This, he gets his function back and he gets his muscle tone back immediately. If you've had your hand in a cast, Wanda, or, you know... Uh, You've had your leg in a cast. Uh, if you had it in there for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, when you get it off, you still got you've got perfect function. I mean, all the nerves and everything's working, but it's sore and your muscles stiff, and it takes you a while to get back to normal. This guy is normal after 38 years of not being able to do anything. So that's uh, a comprehensive kind of miracle, no doubt. And again, that's the kind of thing that any Old Testament thinker should have said. That sounds like something the Messiah could do, and only the Messiah could do. None of the religious leaders, and certainly not this guy, even think that, or at least it's not expressed in the passage. So he picked up his mat and began to walk. He's, he's good. Good to go. And then you've got the little, you know, uh, negative statement here. Now, here's the bad news. It was on the Sabbath that this miracle happened. Why is that such, it's on, on Saturday for them? Why is that so bad? We'll talk about that. Yeah, uh, this man thought Jesus was some kind of random good Samaritan, and he's wanting him maybe to help him hang around uh, in case the water moves so maybe he can beat everybody else there. Uh, in the notes, I say this is a good example of grace for the place. Um, you know, we've been forgiven so much and given so much grace. We've got to school ourselves to be more gracious with people than they deserve. And I'm pretty good at that in, in some contexts. In other contexts, man, I want to fight fire with fire, you know. And that's not always the best approach. You don't have to do a direct assault on every little thing that comes up. I like to say I'm not so important. I should make a big deal about every little thing. And that applies to all of you, too, by the way. So you're not important enough to make a big deal about every little thing. Uh, you hear preachers sometimes say, grace is when you get what you don't deserve, and mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. And boy, that preaches wonderfully well in English, and people love to hear stuff like that. That's not what the terms mean, okay? 
Grace is a general umbrella term for unmerited favor. This favor you don't earn, you don't deserve. When we say we're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves as the gift of God, it means you don't earn salvation, you don't deserve salvation when he gives it to you. You can't unearn it, you can't undeserve it. Okay, That's a big general term, and it's a wonderful term. Mercy is a specific kind of grace. Mercy is favor extended because of the pitiful status of the recipient. Okay, Now, I'm not a big animal lover, although I do like my animals fried or broiled for the most part. You know, if God didn't want us to eat animals, he wouldn't have made them out of meat. Uh, but there, the uh, American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty of Animals is running a, a commercial uh, along with some of the game shows that Debbie and I watch. If you haven't seen Win Sanity yet, you need to check this thing out. I mean, it's a really a fun game show. But they run this thing, and I normally, we tape this stuff and, and bust the commercials, but I've watched that commercial a couple of times, and even a hard-hearted, uh, you know, carnivore like me, you feel so sorry for some of these animals and predicament they're in. I, I get that. And so I kind of thought, oh, I'm kind of having feelings of mercy, you know, for, for dogs that were in these horrible situations. So, But just, just watch out for that. But I would say, yeah, this is an amazing grace miracle, but it's also kind of mega mercy because this guy isn't somebody saying, hey, Jesus, I believe you can heal me. Can you please heal me? He doesn't even know who he is, as we're going to see. Look what happens here. You couldn't make this up. You could not make this up. It, uh, John wouldn't make this up, but this is just what happened. Uh, you know what? I skipped some good stuff I want to say. He says, get up and pick up your mat and walk. Remember what we saw last time, last week, uh, we, as we talked about miracles and faith? Miracles can uh, catalyze faith or can speed up the process of people coming to faith. But miracles don't necessarily always lead to saving faith. In fact, miracles can be misunderstood or explained away. Okay, And we're going to see that in the religious leaders. Rather than saying, wow, this guy is a preacher and he heals the lame. That's something the Messiah is going to do. Let's look and see if Jesus might be the Messiah. They just say, he's got to go. He's going to be flying the ointment. The Romans are not going to like some guy claiming to be Messiah here. We like the status quo. We're making we're we're fat and happy the way it is, and that's uh, the way we want to keep it. Uh, because this guy doesn't have any faith, doesn't even know who Jesus is, and that Jesus takes initiative to heal him, you do sense the fact that the Lord really has a heart for people who are clueless, and that's good because a lot of times we are. But uh, you might even call this a random act of kindness. R A K. Uh, back when when Jonathan and uh, and uh, some of the other kiddos that are now old adults uh, uh, were at Duncan High School, you know they they kind of helped get the uh, uh, Christian uh, campus organization get cranked up again. In their senior year, they emphasized random acts of kindness. Always go out and every day look and do a random act of kindness, not expecting any approbation or appreciation or anything like that. And I think that's kind of a good way to live life. I mean, you know, uh, it's more generous to give than to receive. There's a lot of joy in just being generous and giving to people. And, uh, you know, it's actually a lot of fun. You go to the convenience store and you're buying your big gulp. You got some guy who's sweating. I, I'm a preacher. The heaviest thing I lift in an average week is this, okay? And it is pretty heavy, you know. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, sometimes I'll be up there at noon and, you know, the guy behind has been working in the, in the sun all day long and he's sweating bullets. And it's just a lot of fun to say, hey, let me pay for mine and this guy's. And just pay for it. And kind of look at the guy and walk out. 
And well, you're a preacher. You're gonna you're gonna grill him and put the gospel on him. No, no. I'm just doing a random act of kindness. See what see what happens. You know, there's a lot of joy in that. And I think you know our culture is so afraid of evangelical Christians because they know all the stuff we're against. But they, and, but they don't hear us and they don't see us in an environment like this. We're loving each other, loving the Lord. We're not dangerous. We don't. Have you heard of any Methodist suicide bombers lately? They ain't out there. There are reasons for that. Our Savior tells us to love our enemies, pray for those who despitefully use you. And it doesn't hurt to be nice to that gal. I know she's a little cynical and she's not very friendly behind that counter at the convenience store. But, you know, she's got bad choices with men. She's had like five... The guys live with her, and they've abused her and haven't been nice to her, and she doesn't know the Lord. And so what has she got to be happy about? At least she's not sitting home waiting for a check. At least she's trying to provide for her kids. And it wouldn't hurt, you know, for Christians to kind of affirm them where they are. And, you know, if you get uh, the opportunity and some credibility with the person, of course you want to share the, the faith with them. But that's not the first step. Evangelism is a process, not a point act. So you're seeing Jesus, in effect, doing a random act of kindness now, that last little part there in verse 9, that was the Sabbath. You might say, what's the problem with that? Well, it's a big problem because, I mean, the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments, right, Julie? Uh, but on this side of the cross, you know, we're told Christ is the end of the law for all those who believe. We're not under the Old Testament law. That was spirituality, the training wheels to lead us to Christ, and now we're on the side. So we don't have a Saturday, Seventh-day Sabbath. We have the Lord's Day on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection but there's nothing wrong with the Sabbath as found in Old Testament Scripture. The problem wasn't the law of God. The problem was the oral law of the rabbis in an attempt to kind of protect the sanctity of the Ten Commandments. Over the centuries after Moses, human minds, religious minds, tried to put fences or hedges around the rules to keep you as far away from breaking the rules as possible. And by doing that, with good intentions initially, they ripped the heart out of the rules, and they made it just a bunch of list-keeping, okay? So the Sabbath has been ruined in this culture, and that's the big problem we've got. Uh, what did I say on that? Yeah. They didn't just have the Ten Commandments in the explanation Moses gave. They've got the Ten Commandments, the rest of the Torah, and then they've got the rabbinical writings. Now, just because this is so bizarre... And hard to believe. I'm going to read Kent Hughes' comments on this. He says, uh, Over the centuries, religious people began to protect the Sabbath by their own prohibitions added to Scripture, eventuating in 39 series of laws. And, and these laws are just books full of stuff. Now watch this. These extra laws constituted a hedge around the Sabbath but it was a man-made hedge. For instance, some of these are so crazy you can't believe them. Looking in a mirror on the Sabbath was a crime. Now, where does Deuteronomy say that? That's what the rabbi said hundreds of years later. Now, why would looking in the mirror be a crime? Now, if you look like me, looking in a mirror is very painful, especially at like 6.30 in the morning every day, just so you'll know. But, uh, you know, if you're Julie Demerson, you've got something nice to look at. So, I mean, what's the problem? Well, the reason that the rabbis thought and taught and enforced as civil law in that culture that looking in the mirror was forbidden was because if you looked in the mirror and you saw something you didn't like, you might be tempted to fix it, like pull out a gray hair, and that would be work. And you can't work on the Sabbath. Here's another one. Wearing false teeth was a crime. 
Now, they actually did have a first-generation low-tech false teeth back then. Uh, it was called wax. Now, it was, I'm not sure what they had. But uh, according to the rabbis, what the Sabbath meant was, among other things, you could not wear your false teeth because if they fell out, you would have to pick them up, and that would be work. And you can't work on the Sabbath. Okay. Now, here's, here's another one. Carrying a handkerchief. And for me, spelling handkerchief was that was, an, that was an, I didn't know how to spell handkerchief, so I just uh, didn't sound right to me. But I, that's the correct spelling, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, all these obscure meanings, and, and this was crazy. You could not carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath, but you could wear, according to the rabbis, you could wear a handkerchief on the Sabbath. Okay, so Jack, maybe one of these Sundays you got to wear a handkerchief. It'd be a good look for you. But uh, but here's the thing. That meant if you were upstairs and you wanted to take a handkerchief downstairs so you could wear it to the synagogue, you'd have to tie it around your neck, walk downstairs, and then untie it. That kind of craziness. So watch this. The Jews even debated about a man with a wooden leg, namely, if his home caught fire on the Sabbath, could he carry his wooden leg out or would it be work and would it be a a major Sabbath violation. So when we're told in passing at the end of verse uh, 9, it was the Sabbath on that day, you might say, well, he's just saying it's Saturday. No, he's saying it's, it's the day you got to jump through all these hoops. It's this day you got to walk on pins and needles so you don't break one of the picky added rules and regulations that had been given by man, okay? Um, now, by the way, I'm not sure why we're going to... Hold on a second. Yeah. Yeah. Now, by the way, this is the first time uh, that little statement about the Sabbath is pregnant with implication because the, the guys who have decided what the Sabbath really means are about to condemn Jesus. And you might say, well, golly, everything's been going so well in Gospel of John. This is the first indication uh, of any problem. Well, not really. Back in chapter 2, they said, what sign are you giving us that you cleanse the temple? Well, destroy this. Uh, you cleanse the, the temple situation. He said, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. And what's he thinking about? He's thinking about his death and resurrection. Why is he going to die? Because the religious people want to kill him. But at the very beginning of the book, in the uh, introduction, the prologue, we read this. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world by and large didn't know who he was. He came unto his own, the Jews, who should have known him from the Scriptures, and his own by and large, some individual exceptions, but generally did not receive him. But as many as received him of them, he gave the right uh, to be children of God. So we do have inc- indications earlier in the book that we're going to have problems with religious people. It's, it was the religious people that didn't like Jesus because he broke their, their paradigm. Okay, So you have to watch out for man-made religion. Now, by the way, let's think about saving faith for a minute. You know, I always like to say saving faith in Jesus is active receptive trust, Russell. And you're going to hear me say that over and over and over again. Active receptive trust. It's not just mental assent to facts. It's active receptive trust. And you look at Verse 12 there in that prologue talking about the rejection from the world and from his own. But every individual exception who received him, that's active receptive trust, to them he gave the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. To believe in is a bizarro expression. You have no other place in ancient Koine Greek literature where you have that verb to believe, pistuo, followed by a particular uh, preposition, ace. It means to believe into and onto. It's just a strange saying, but it's the way John talks about saving faith. 
Saving faith is directed at a specific object, the person, the work of Christ on the cross, and his resurrection. Okay, we're believing that Christ is the Savior. He paid our sin debt. He rose again, and we trust ourselves to him. We put all of our chips on him. We actively receive him as our Savior. We recognize we have guilt, and it's ours, and no ability to save ourselves. And that's why this is so offensive to the world, because they don't want to know about guilt. They don't want to be told they can't save themselves, and they certainly don't want to think that Jesus is the exclusive issue and the exclusive issue of eternal life. All those things are odious to uh, the modern mindset and really always have been. Okay, We already talked about that. So let's look at the scandal. We saw the setting, the sign, now the scandal. So we're on the Sabbath. This guy has been healed. Jesus did a messianic miracle. They should have recognized that, but none of them are thinking like that. They're just thinking... They're, these people are breaking the rules, and we've got to get these rule breakers. So the Jews, that's not an anti-Semitic statement in John. He's talking about the Jewish VIPs in Jerusalem, the, the leaders of institutional Judaism. We're saying to the guy who's just been cured, I'm going to call him the Healy, okay? We've got the healer, Jesus, and the Healy, the guy who had been lame. It's the Sabbath, and you know according to the oral law of the Talmud, it's not permissible for you to carry your mat. That's work. You can't do that. In fact, that could have been a capital crime. They found court records of people carrying stuff in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, and after due process of law, they were stoned to death. So this is serious. This is not like a parking ticket or something. But he answered them, it's not my fault. He who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. Well, the woman you gave me gave me this fruit told me to eat it. What can I do? You know, kind of thing. We always want to pass the buck, right? Uh, and so they said to him, who is the man that said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? This is a horrible crime you people are committing. This is a conspiracy to, to break the Sabbath. Uh, but the man who was healed did not know who it was, and Jesus had walked away, and in the crowds couldn't find him, couldn't identify him. This is wild. You couldn't believe this. The RLs, what is that? Religious leaders uh, give the guy a formal legal warning, and this is serious crime. This is a, serious, this is a felony they're talking about under the theocracy. The Healy said, it's not my fault. The guy who healed me told me to do it. Uh, well, who told you? Who was it? He said, I don't know. Boom. The great thing about ignorance is it's 100% curable <laughs> with, a little, with a little bit of information. Uh, and the story goes on. Look at verse 14. Afterward, after uh, the Healy has brought contact with the authorities and they're in the process of investigating, he's kind of uh, hanging around the temple area. Now, don't read too much into that. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Well, at least he's, he's worshiping the temple. The term temple means anything inside those big walls around the whole complex. So he could have been eating a snack or just goofing around, or just hanging out. He's not necessarily worshiping. He might have been, but based on his mindset, I doubt it. But he's in that area. So afterward, Jesus found him and said, Behold, you've become well, right? Supernaturally. I did no work. I just snapped my fingers and you're well because of who I am. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse will happen to you. Now watch this. Uh, not The Bible's very clear. And watch out for this, Kathy, even on your birthday. And is that is that like a classified number? Are we allowed to know how old you are? Like 68? It's Gay's birthday? You say, I'm getting old and I can't remember whose birthday it is. So Gay, are you going to tell us how old you are? Oh, it is classified. Okay. Well, it's probably over 21, right? Something like that. But uh, it's very important to remember, 
uh, and not all religious people know this, not all personal suffering is directly caused by personal sin. That was Job, Job's friend's problem. You know, he has all these bad things happen to him, and they say, hey, bad things happen to you, you must have done really something really, really bad, right? How do we know that that's not true with the book of Job? But look at John 9. Uh, in John 9, Jesus does the sixth sign, the healing of the blind man. And this guy was born blind. And so watch this. The same people had added all the rules that you can't wear false teeth and you can't look in a mirror uh, on the Sabbath. The, the same mindset of those type people uh, also said if somebody was born with a limp or born blind or born something, either the baby in the womb sinned or the mom or dad sinned. That's the reason birth defects happen. It's a lot more comp complicated than that. It's not true. It's not biblical. But look at chapter 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked, Hey, Rabbi, theological question, uh, who sinned, this man in the womb or his parents, that he was born blind? So they're assuming what they've been told by the rabbis. And Jesus said, it was neither. There's a lot bigger reasons for this. This has been permitted for a much bigger reason. And so it's wrong to say that all personal sin is the direct uh, result of uh, suffering is the direct result of personal sin. However, a lot of modern evangelicals never think maybe I've contributed to my problem. Okay, uh, Sometimes we do X and we get this disease. We lie on the resume and we get found out and lose our job. The, the problem that happens is directly as a result of our sin. And here you've got a case like that. You've got this 58-year-old, we've already established he's definitely 58 years old, so I can do the math here, right? 58-year-old guy living under the Jewish theocracy, dominated by the religious thinkers of the day with all the additions they've done. And, you know, under that Old Testament covenant, for that community, there, there was some tit-for-tat, so to speak, for certain types of sins. And this guy probably was a blasphemer or an adulterer or something like that. He'd done probably a series of really bad things in his, when he's 20. And uh, his ailment in this case was because of sin. It was divine discipline on his sin. And so Jesus, I think, after letting him decompress, and Jesus knows about the interaction with the Jewish authorities he's had, but walks up to him and basically says, now that you're a little bit more mobile than you've been, that's a blessing, but also that can allow you to go some places you shouldn't go. Up to now you've had to have friends drag you to the places you shouldn't go. Now you can go on your own. So he's just giving him a fair warning. You know, don't do uh, uh, anything that might cause your situation to come back or be even worse. And so the man went away. But the point is he's interacting with Jesus and he caught his name. He, I'm sure the guy said as he's parting, now what was your name again, man? And he says, I'm Yeshua, you know, from uh, Yeshua. Okay, let me write that down. Okay. So what happens? As soon as Jesus breaks contact, look at verse 15, Ben. The man went away. The healy. He hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. Now he's got a spring in his step and a song in his heart. And he goes directly to the bad guys. He goes back to the thought police, you know. He goes to the Jewish leaders and says, I got it. I can tell you who it is. His name's Yeshua. And he's from Galilee, but he's here for the festival. Uh, that's the guy who made me well. At that point, again, any religious leader should have said, we're going to have to check this guy out because the Messiah is Lord of Sabbath and he can heal the lame. So maybe this is, maybe this is the Messiah. You know, they don't even think like that. Look what happens. For this reason, the Jews now have a reason to persecute him. Remember in Acts, we learned the reason people give isn't always the reason. It's just the least embarrassing excuse, the best rationale they can think of to do what they want to do. Uh, they got a reason for this reason. 
because Jesus had the audacity to claim to be Lord of Sabbath by doing what he wants to do in the Sabbath based on what the Sabbath really meant and healing a guy who'd been lame for 38 years, the Jewish leaders began persecuting Jesus just in the preliminary planning, plotting stage because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, my father's working till now and I'm working too. In another place, he'll say, the, uh, the Christ is Lord of the Sabbath, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, for this reason, therefore, the Jews, no good deed goes unpunished, were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. It's going to take a while for the plan to come to fruition because he was not only breaking the Sabbath in their mind. He wasn't breaking the Sabbath based on the Old Testament, but on, on the rabbinical uh, oral law. Uh, for he's also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, we're going to stress the fact that Jesus emphasizes his deity in the book of John as we go through the latter phases of this uh, series. But just suffice it to say now, when we tend to think, well, the father and the son, uh, just in human relationships, obviously they're connected through mom and stuff, but the father kind of outranks the son in the home. And so we tend to think of superiority and, or, and inferiority or lower roles or whatever. And that... A relationship can connote that based on context. But here's the thing. And I've got a degree in biology, although I graduated from Lamar University a long time with my biology degree. So they've, they've changed all the rules. They've added a new kingdom. We used to have just plant and animal kingdom. Now we have protista. So they added a whole kingdom after I graduated. They've also decided Pluto's not a planet. So, you know, things change, you know. Uh, the final findings of science are constantly changing. But... Uh, yeah, and I had such a good thing to say there. Uh, help me. Hang me. I'm, I'm, I'm at the, I'm at the uh, finish line here. Yeah. Help me. Help me. It's going to come. It's going to come. What was I going to say? I'm not leaving until it comes to mind. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got it. Uh, watch this. Daddy alligators have baby alligators. Daddy bears, with a little help from mom, have baby bears. Daddies who are human beings have babies who are human beings, okay? The Son of God is God. When he claims God's his Father, now we're used to, we're comfortable as New Testament believers saying God's our Father because that's a stress of the New Testament. For we're all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Lowercase s, lowercase d. Okay, you're all thinking, I can't believe that dumb dumb forgot that, and that, that's dumb thing. Yeah, but I, that's the kind of thing I work up at the last minute. So I got to slide it in there, then I forget, and this is the whole thing up. But anyway, yeah. So the point is, they understood what he meant by that. One of his implications there is that I am God. I'm over the Sabbath. I can do whatever I want to, and what I do is going to be perfect. All the time, every time. How dare you want to indict me? Now, just if you're taking notes, write down John 8 and John 10. He's going to get more and more specific about this. But this was an illusion that you might miss reading it in English and not thinking those categories, but they didn't miss it. But in John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And he uses a term that uh, is the Greek form of the word for God in the Old Testament. And then in uh, John 10, he says, I and the Father are one and the same in character. So... That's a major teaching of the Gospel of John. Uh, I want you to notice, too, before we conclude, that uh, the vast majority of the religious leaders were just in this for the money and the fame and just going through the motions. But there were a couple of exceptions. It's really interesting. If you look at John 19 real quickly, we're going to see both Nicodemus and another guy who would have been in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, 
a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Both of these gentlemen were believers by the uh, date of the crucifixion, and they were really happy with the resurrection, I can tell you this. But in the aftermath of the crucifixion of Christ, look at verse uh, 38, John 19, 38. We read this. Now, after these things, the death of Christ, and we're going to do the burial, but it's almost sundown about to happen, and that's a Sabbath, and you can't break the Sabbath, so you're trying to hurry up and, and, and get the Lord in the tomb. After these things, Joseph Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but what? You see that in your text? Ray, what does it say? A secret one. You can't really believe in Jesus if you hide it. Yeah, you can. We can hide all kinds of stuff, man. When you hide it, you're concealing who you really are. When you live consistently, you're revealing who you really are. But this guy's a real disciple, uh, but he'd been secret because of his fear of the other Jewish Jewish uh, VIPs. He asked Pilate, but he had enough clout he could go to Pilate and say, hey, I want to have custody of the body so we give it a decent burial. Grant, Pilate granted permission. Then verse 39, Nicodemus saw him last in chapter 3. He's a big shot in Judaism. Jesus witnesses to him, but we didn't know he's a believer until now. Nicodemus, who had first come to by night back in chapter 3, he's also involved in this. So it's pretty neat to know that even in the darkest, deepest uh vast uh, bastions of unbelief, you may have some people who really get it and, lo- and love the Lord, but they may not have high visibility. you got to trust on the Lord to know when to do that. Let me conclude this way. Take this to heart. Truth is stranger than fiction. Christ himself doing miracles gathered real opposition and not just secularist atheists. I mean, we're talking about religious people who hated him from the get-go. So the principle is Christ himself slash Christ-centered Christianity, where the First Baptist Church, First Methodist Church, or Tangwood Bible Fellowship Church, always has had, always will have, secular and religious opponents because the good news that's so dear to our hearts is gross nonsense to many. And it's rapidly becoming probably a hate crime to preach the gospel as the thought police decide what the First Amendment means this week. You know, it can change. Now, I say all that say this, and I'll, I'll close. Uh, trying to take the scandal out of Christianity to be politically correct and seeker-sensitive is theologically incorrect and repudiates the very essence of the ministry of Christ. He knew a lot of the stuff, all the stuff that he did that was that caused offense. He knew that was going to happen, but he did it anyway. It wasn't like, well, how can I act around the Pharisees that they might like me? You know, you, you be yourself and you be true to yourself. Uh, the last 50 years in evangelical circles, there's been a lot of uh, Americanizing Christianity and we want to remove the cross because that might be offensive and let's not ask them to bring paper Bibles. And you want to read, if you want to read your Bible on your phone, I don't care. You can't break technology. I'm all for technology. But there's something about a paper Bible is special, right? Uh, right? You like that? But the idea is if we can get them to like us, eventually maybe we can tell them about Jesus. Maybe they'll like him. And that just is not the way it's done. Now, your market surveys may say that'll work when you're selling soap flakes. I mean, don't tell them you want to go from Comet to Tide. I mean, kind of sneak them on there. Remember the old Pepsi challenge? I was a, I was a huge Diet Pepsi guy before I became a Coke Zero guy. And, uh, okay, I'm almost done. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and I, but I remember, I'm dating myself. It's like 500 years ago, they had the Pepsi challenge on television. Remember that? You had Coke, Pepsi. And I thought, man, there's no way 
that I can't tell the difference. And then we were in Houston at the time, and I went to some event, and they had the Pepsi challenge. I said, watch this. And I drank it. I couldn't tell the difference. I was pretty sure they'd put Pepsi in both cups, but um, <laughs> but I'm kind of like that, you know. But I would just say, hey, uh, let's beware trying to be popular with the world. I think the problem is a lot of times we've been unnecessarily self-righteous and shrill, uh, and uh, that's a killer. Being self-righteous makes you look more like the enemies of Jesus than Jesus. So we should not be needlessly self-righteously offensive to the world, but we can't compromise our beliefs or our convictions hoping people will like us, and maybe they'll eventually like Jesus. That's just not the way it's done at all. Uh, love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. But what did the, the book of Jude t- tell us we're supposed to be doing? We're supposed to contend for the faith, to defend it, right, and to stand for it. And so beware of that siren call that we can make everybody like Jesus, like us, if we just kind of jump through their hoops for it. That didn't work. That didn't work with the religious Pharisees trying to please them. You can never please them. It doesn't work with uh, our culture either. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this uh, accurate account of this very unique miracle. Uh, I'm not preaching him out of heaven, Lord. You know where he is right now. But it sounds like this guy is a pretty hopeless case, pretty clueless. And yet, the Lord Jesus interacted with him with a lot of mercy and a lot of grace. I pray that one take home for us is that. Hey, you know, the gal behind the counter at the convenience store may be rude, crude, nasty, and uh, all kinds of body ornaments all over her body that we wouldn't use probably, but uh, help us to show that kind of person, the waiter, the janitor, a little extra grace uh, because they probably need it. It's not going to hurt us. And we've received so much from your hand, so much forgiveness and grace to save us and sustain us. Help us to be more gracious than people would expect and not hanging around waiting for them to tell us how nice we are or or pay us back or anything like that. Uh, Help us to see Jesus for what he is, a perfect redeemer, savior, and yet inherently controversial. And forgive us for wanting to put him in a suit and uh, make him look like a modern America. Maybe not a suit. He'd he'd have his shirt tail out and tennis shoes with dress uh, pants, and he'd be telling cool jokes. And forgive us for wanting to uh, make Jesus cool and soft and fluffy and friendly uh, when a lot of times he totally uh, questions our, our assumptions about all reality. And for those of us who have trusted him, help us to realize that uh, he will connect with those who really want him from the heart. And we don't have to change him or clean him up or make him something he's not. Uh, Thank you for each one who's here this morning and all over the building. Please continue to work in us and through us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.